Meet today's momentum sister. She's a trailblazer, a pioneer, a Jewish mom, and she's making a difference for herself, her family, her community, and the world. Want to know how she does it? This is the Pashmina Podcast, and here is our host, Adrian Gold Davis. I cannot tell you how excited I am to interview Dr. Eileen Moore because, you know, she's a pediatrician, and I was that mother who called the office two, three, twelve times a week harassing the uh, receptionist and the nurse, asking questions, filled with angst, you know, the whole bit. And I often thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could just sit down a pediatrician and ask them what we all really want to know. And this morning, I have the opportunity to do that. So welcome. And let me ask you your first question. So as a pediatrician, you undoubtedly face the anxiety of mothers like me, worrying about what's normal and so on. So How often do you think we mothers worry about things that are just typical stages of development? First of all, thank you so much for asking me to be here. Um, And I I want to say that I had very different um, understandings of that question before and after I had children of my own. (laughs) Um, I remember before I had children and I was blessed after a really long, long, long time of trying um, with twins who are now six and a half. And before I had kids, I was in practice for maybe six or seven years. And I had very distinctly, I remember um, a mother of triplets who would bring her triplets to see me with lists of questions. <laughs> and I thought she was just adorable. And I loved seeing not her. Not nuts, because I worry she thought my Not kid. nuts at all. I'm okay. sure she thought she was nuts. Okay. But I thought she was adorable. And, oh, isn't that cute that <laughs> you bring your lists and, and all of your worries and because everything is fine and everything is normal. And then I had my own <sighs> twins. And I have spent really the last six and a half years apologizing <laughs> to, <laughs> to every mother who I ever um, made think that her, uh, that she was silly for, for worrying because as a mother and a pediatrician, I know that it, that worry is um, hormonal, that worry is real. And um, that, that doesn't mean we have to let it own us. But so are you saying that often when you are, you know, the pediatrician for a small child, you are inadvertently treating the mother as well? (laughs) Absolutely. And and I think I'm also treating myself. (laughs) You know, after you had children, did it did it ever start to did you ever have well, maybe it's just me and my craziness. But, you know, did you ever start to look at symptoms in, in, in your patients and then wonder if that could happen to your own children? Or are you able to keep their separation there between your practice and what happens at home? So that I'm able to separate what happens to my patients from what happens at home, but what happens at home is very intensely magnified with the amount of knowledge that a pediatrician has. That's what has. I mean. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know. Because I can recount many times from the stories of the days when um, I accidentally caught my daughter's finger while trimming her nails. <laughs> 
and I couldn't get it to stop. And I thought I was going to have to take her into the emergency room, but I didn't want to take her anywhere where anyone knew me because (laughs) I was afraid they would think I, they wouldn't believe that I was actually a pediatrician because how could I possibly have let this happen to my own child? So there are a lot of those own anxieties, which really allow me to truly empathize in a way that I never could before. Okay, so now I just have to ask you since you raised it. And this is probably a complex question, but I really want you to answer it anyway, because <laughs> because I've, I've, I've been concerned about this myself. We see so much anxiety in young children today. And I wonder, does anxiety transfer from the mother to the child? Do I have some kind of responsibility in my child's angst? Or is that something at a young age that, you know, is separate? That's a really difficult question. Like you said, it's it's a it's a complex answer. Yes and no. We know that even from a very 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 early age, cortisol is our stress hormone. Okay. When we are stressed, our body is flooded with cortisol. Okay. Cortisol actually goes through the breast milk. So when we nurse our babies and we are very stressed, it's not uncommon at all to end up with a very jittery, very crabby baby. Wow. Yep. I had no idea. And it's heavy to say that because I hesitate to put that kind of pressure on new moms. It's because we're so worried. We already know that everything we do affects our baby. So I try instead, to, instead of saying, be careful because cortisol goes through your breast milk, I try to frame it in the positive. Try to make yourself as calm as possible before interacting with your babies. Yeah, but when somebody tells me to be calm, I instantly become anxious. Well, and then then I'd say the more you can control that, the less of your own anxiety you can transfer to your baby. As, As a pediatrician, would you say, this is something I've never thought about, but would you say that during pregnancy might be a very good time for a mother to work on her own personal issues and her ability to calm herself, her ability to deal with her own anxiety. Would you say that that was a worthwhile endeavor, even perhaps more so than, you know, rubbing oil on potential stretch marks? Yeah, and I would even say that it starts before that. I mean, I, I think that that's something that the more I practice and the more I learn about um adverse childhood experiences and the effects that trauma and repeated stressful events have uh, and what we can do to help with that, the the more I realize that we should be focusing on that even before we want to have children or as we're thinking about having children and really fostering that in our own children. So as they grow up to be adults, that's a skill, that's a huge skill um, that we should be calling out that we need. We need that ability to be resilient, to withstand the the vagaries of childhood and the vagaries of adulthood that that they pass on to us. That is an exquisite idea. It truly is. And I, you speak about resiliency. Um, you know, there's a Jewish quote. You probably know it because I know you're deeply uh, interested in these things, that the righteous person falls seven times and gets up. I wonder... Do you think that our children have less resiliency now that we are smothering them more, you know, overfunctioning more? Do you think that a mother's anxiety, which often will bring her to overfunction, prevents resiliency developing in her child? 
It does, and it even goes deeper than that because the lack in, in the same way that, you know, mitzvah, gorever mitzvah. Um, a mitzvah ooh, leads to a mitzvah or a, a good deed a good of connection deed leads, leads to a, to a connection. Deed. Sure. It works in reverse too. Lack of resiliency breeds lack of resiliency. And as we we ourselves become less resilient, those same genetic changes and those same epigenetic changes, and this is getting really deeply scientific and Good. research is starting to come out that is going to sort of blow the lid off of all of this. Mm-hmm. Looking at the things we pass down genetically to our children and our grandchildren in terms of resiliency or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. So they, they did studies on mice that showed that mice who had who were stressed in a certain way were became unresilient let's say became rigid and unable to uh, flex with additional stress those mice then had babies and they switched them to be reared by the opposite group so one group of mice was stressed one group of mice was not stressed they had babies and then reared the other group's babies. Got it. Those babies responded the way their mothers responded, wow. not the way they were raised. Wow. So that sort of answers the nature and nurture question, doesn't it? Yes. In, so it, for, it in, is, for in certain in certain instances. But that absolutely. would only be true of mice, right? Because I think um, Jewishly we understand <laughs> that there is we have free will, we have the capacity and the ability to to rise above our natures. That's one of the things that makes us human. Right. But we can't do that as children. That's right. an act of deep maturity, wouldn't you say? And I think you have to first understand your nature before you <laughs> can rise above it. So understanding that these are the things that if we are unaware, we pass down. That's the first step to being able to rise above it ourselves and to teach our children to rise above it. I talk about that with my patients every day. Talk about resiliency and how important it is to not let external things define us. Yeah, I have that favorite quote that I always use, that greatness is not what happens to you, it's who you are in the face of what happens to you. Do you think it's too soon to teach a child that principle? I talk about that with three-year-olds. How do you, how do you explain it to a three-year-old? Well, so with a three-year-old, I say, I, I talk about um, sometimes bad things happen. And many times my patients come to me having had very difficult things happen. Um, and I, I say, it's what you get to make a choice because three-year-olds are very into choices. Mm-hmm. You get to make a choice. Do you choose to be happy? Do you choose to be sad? Do you choose to be angry? Do you choose to be glad? So you get to make a choice. And how do they respond to that? Do they understand that? You never know. You hope that they do. I mean, they're three, so... But you the know, language of yeah. choice, you're saying, is powerfully The important. language of choice is powerful. So speaking of these patients, who would you say are your most vulnerable patients? And what kind of challenges do you navigate in treating them and, and in advocating for them? So I work in a community health center. Um, and about 40% of our patients are uninsured or underinsured. Many of our patients are undocumented. Many of our patients are refugees from various countries. Many of our patients don't speak English. Oh, my. And it is a tremendous joy to go to work every day. 
It really is. Tell me why. I mean, I think I think spiritually I understand, but tell me why for you it's such a great joy. So first of all, I have um, the privilege of holding these stories, which I I believe that we're all put here for a purpose. And I think, and I get really emotional when I talk about this, so you know it's real. Like when, when you feel your emotion well up, you know it's real. Right. Um, I think a large part of my purpose was to hold these people's stories and to help them realize that their stories don't have to define them. And you mean their stories them. of immigration, their stories of abuse, that sort of thing? Yes. Their stories of trauma, their stories of parental separation, of deportation, of escaping their home country to be held in a deportation center. I mean, there are there are terrible stories, but they're also stories of hope and inspiration for people who want to make a better life and for children to understand that their parents love them so much that they're willing to risk their lives and their families and their safety for the hope of the promise of the possibility of a better life, of safety, of shelter, of food, of family, of... Do you ever reinforce these concepts with the children themselves when they're, I mean, at what age do do they come in to the office without their parents and share with you their traumas, you know, where they want the privacy? Do you still see them at that age? So uh, starting at age 12, I always offer kids a time to spend some time alone with me. And I phrase it to their parents. If if I'm fortunate enough to have been seeing them for a while, then when they're 11, I say this is the last time that we're going to all be together as a group for the whole visit. From now on, you get to be in here a little bit together. Mom gets to ask any questions or concerns. And then she or whoever comes with you gets to go out to the waiting room is and you get to practice. So there is no law around it. Okay. It's just my personal practice. And okay. I, I believe it's important. And I phrase it to parents in terms of training. I'm training your child to be able to go see the doctor on their own Sunday. Oh, so smart. If you say it like that, it's a little more palatable to a parent sure. than get out. Your, <laughs> your kid might want to say something about you behind your back, right. or your kid might want to talk about something personal not to you. Right. That's threatening as a parent. But to say, I'm training your child to be their own health advocate, to know how to answer questions, to know what medicines they take, to know how to take care of themselves, then usually parents are, are feel pretty good about that. Now, actually. do you do the same age for both the boys and the girls? I do. Yep. Interesting. And and how do you find they respond to it? How do they do they open up to you? Do you hear things in the office? Do our children tell you things that you feel like you're compelled to share with us? Or do you have to hold their privacy? So I'm very clear to teens and parents, and I say this to the both of them. Everything that your child says to me is confidential, with the exception of if they're going to hurt themselves or someone else. That I can't hold to myself. I need to get help. But outside of that, everything we talk about is confidential. What about if they were hurt by their own parents? Uh, That's a legal issue. And then I'm a mandated reporter, and I have to tell. Wow. And have you gotten to a place where you can... I mean, I remember, this is going to sound silly, but I remember when one of my kids was two going to the pediatrician and the child tore the office apart. He was a <laughs> lunatic running around like crazy, laughing and screaming and throwing toys. And when I took him to the office, the doctor said to me, well, you know, I probably don't even have to do this appointment 
And I said, why not? And he said, he's a healthy, normal two-year-old. Exactly. Because when they don't act like that, I check for bruises. Can you imagine? Do you check for signs of abuse? I always check for signs of abuse. But it's not with the expectation that it's the parent doing it. Uh I check for anyone who might be. It could be someone in school. It could be someone in daycare. It could be, unfortunately, it could be someone at home. Does your heart break some days? Personally, are you able to, I mean, I often think about doctors and, and what they have to face. I mean, literally holding life in your hands. How do you deal I mean, you're such a compassionate woman. Clearly, you've already teared up while we're just speaking. How do you deal with the weight of caring literally and figuratively for other people? I pray a lot. Oh, you do? I do. What do you pray for? I pray that God gives me the strength to hold their stories, that he gives me the compassion to help them when I can, and that he gives me the peace to know that I do what I can and that I have to be okay with the knowledge I can't save anyone. <laughs> I have lots of resources at my disposal when people are ready to accept them. Um, but that everyone has their own life to live and that really everyone is doing the very best they can with what they have. You are so compassionate. Let me ask you another question. Uh, you know, Obviously, I'm asking for myself, but for our listeners as well. How do you deal with judging favorably as opposed to being randomly judgmental? Because I'm sure you see and hear things that would make anyone shake their head. But I can't imagine a compassionate practitioner who hasn't learned to judge favorably. How do you judge favorably while still being alert to what could possibly be going wrong? My judging favorably really has come through years and years of hard personal work. Um, If you've ever heard Lori Palatnik's character talk about the Chaim, the Bracha, the Tov, I, by nature, am a judgmental Tov. I, I remember I wanted to think I was, <laughs> I was a, non-judge, a non-judgmental Tov. And, <laughs> and I said it to um, a couple of my friends and they started laughing, yeah. which, was, which was great. <laughs> um, my so mother was our, a non-judgmental for our, Tov. For our viewers, our listeners... Um, a tove is um, described as a character, a soul, or a body type that is um, exacting, uh, that is detail-oriented, that likes to get it right, to do what's right, lives in the world of right and wrong, black and white, is able to um, draw clear lines of delineation between those things. Uh, not just for themselves, but often for you. That's the judgmental one. Yes, right. So um, I'm by nature a a fairly judgmental person. Um, But as I, when I started learning more about Judaism and started learning more about the concept that um, it's not all or nothing, Mm -hmm. I think that really permeated everything for me. Wow. In that... If, if I'm looking to Hashem to 
not judge me because of where I am on the mitzvot ladder, let's just say, um, you know, then, and, and I remember internalizing the message um, one high holiday season of God judges us the way we judge others. <clears throat> that was pretty powerful for me too. So I really worked hard at seeing the part of the person in front of me who is doing the best they can. It's just beautiful. And if you can see that spark in someone, and you always can, then that's the part that I talk to. That's the part. The other part, the part that smokes or the part that, uh, you know, there's this, there's this smell of not having, being able to clean yourself as often as you want or the clothes not being as clean, those are those are not who these people are. Oh. I just want to see who they are. Wow. And I see who they are in the way they change their baby's diaper, in the way they cuddle their baby, or in the way they comfort their toddler when they're getting a shot. So that's who they are. Oh. And I tell them that. I say, oh, I see how you snuggle him. That's so great. You're telling him how much you love him. I bet that that just floods these people, especially these vulnerable people, with great relief and comfort. I hope so. You know, your role as a pediatrician, as a doctor, um, automatically goes into the category of, you know, altruistic and doing good. But there are many, many doctors who have no bedside manner and who are not compassionate and who are not patient and do not look for the good. What do you think provoked you to integrate spirituality and wisdom into your practice as opposed to, you know, just natural human desire to do your job well? Because it sounds to me like there is a deeper connection here. Uh, for example, I know that you you went on one of the momentum trips to Israel with us. I'm just curious, how did your momentum experience or did your momentum experience in any way impact the way you practice medicine? Oh, it's, I mean, absolutely transformational. Because I, I, I can't really... Um, I feel like I can't even compare the way I practiced medicine before that time to the way I practiced after because two things happened. One, I wasn't actually practicing at the time that I went on my trips. I was doing some consulting work. Uh -huh. So, And I also didn't have children at the time. You were I, able to come on the trip before you had children. You yes, were an exception. I, I was a maiden voyager. Wow. I was, my group went on the very first year, the very first trip. When you can still take an exception. Right. God puts us where we need to be, and he gave me what I needed at the exact time that I needed it. And you you pretty much took the answer right out of my mouth, that it really was the JWRP trip. And what I learned there and um, how I felt about myself and about who I was when I left there was what I carried with me into my return to practice. And it's what gets me through my day. And what was it that you felt? That 
as a Jew, God deeply loved me and was intimately involved in every aspect of my life. And that just because I wasn't following every commandment, that did not in any way negate the beauty of my soul and the purpose for why I was here. Wow. That's glorious. So like I say, really transformational. That's a pretty transformational thing. Yeah, my I'm sort of in awe at the moment. It's it's you know when you hear exactly what it is that you're trying to do and somebody says it and you're like, <laughs> I could just cry right now. It's wonderful. Okay, Eileen, give me some practical wisdom. You know, we've talked a little bit about small children, but let's talk a bit more about school-aged and into the teens. Can you give me a sense of what is typical and what, you know, mood changes, what constitutes anxiety versus a typical moody teenager? What constitutes, you know, mental health issues versus the natural kind of volatile behavior of a school-aged child? How do you determine when there's a difference that needs attention? Well... A certain degree of moodiness is normal at pretty much all stages of life because as adults, I mean, let's not fool ourselves, we're pretty moody. And I think holding children up to uh, a different expectation is setting ourselves up for failure. We expect our children to somehow not have mood swings when we ourselves have mood swings and impatient times and upsetting losses of control. and, and yet we expect children to somehow handle them better than we handle them ourselves. Mm. So starting with that recognition, um, I think that understanding that much of psychology has a biological underpinning helps us stop thinking of mental health and emotional health and spiritual health as separate from physical health. So it's a holistic thing. So it's a very holistic approach for me um, because, again, the more research that comes out um, about the effects of hormones in our biology, our responses are very biological in nature, even when we overlay our own psychological interpretation on top of them. Can you give me an example of what that might mean? Are you talking about puberty, for example? So puberty floods the body with all kinds of hormones. And people who think that estrogen and progesterone and testosterone are only involved in reproduction are mistaken. I mean, they control these very biological responses. So the same type of stimulus, the same experience uh, in a six-year-old and in an 11-year-old and in a 14-year-old in someone who's before puberty and someone who's in puberty and someone who's post-puberty are going to be very different. Understanding, talking with your pediatrician to know what that developmental stage is that your kid is going through is critical. Every child should have a checkup every year Hmm. because it's a great time, especially if your kid is a healthy kid. It's a great time to check in and find out what's normal. Is this response normal? Is fighting with their brother normal? Is struggling in school normal? Really, the answer is yes, most of the time. Um, 
But there's also a big spectrum of normal and things that are slightly atypical mm-hmm. could be something that requires attention and could not. So how are you going to know? Talk to your pediatrician. So as a pediatrician, what I tell families is it's always good thing for our kids to have people in their corner, whether it's a pediatrician, whether it's a counselor at school, whether it's a counselor outside of school, whether it's a trusted friend of the family, whether it's a teacher, having those people in your corner helps you understand what's normal and what's not from the kid's point of view. So I also tell parents that Getting a child to talk to someone else in terms of a counselor or a therapist doesn't mean that there's something wrong with your child. Or wrong with your parenting. Or wrong with your parenting. Right. So that we, you know, there's a reason that I'm a pediatrician and a teacher is a teacher and a plumber is a plumber. We all have different skills and we all have strengths, Mm -hmm. right? So... My strength is in looking after a child's development, their physical health. Really, their mental health is not my area of expertise. I see. So saying to someone, you know, there are people who can teach you the same way I'm helping you learn how you're to raise a healthy, physically healthy child. Let this person give you tips and tricks. Let this person give you Hmm. guide you in how to say things to your children in a way that they can hear it. Everyone has their strengths. So I think that, you know, I wish really in an ideal world, every child would have a pediatrician and every child would have a counselor because I think we all, life is hard and it's getting harder and kids are playing less and less and they're moving less and less. Right. So those feel good hormones are less and less. Right. And they're coming more from food and less from moving around. Hmm. And our families aren't as close as they used to be. Wait a minute. Just a second. Just a second. Are you telling me that the hormone pleasure hormones that we get from food, like junk food and candy and sweets, can be emulated through exercise and play? They can be. They're the same hormones? Yes, they are. Come on. And especially through play. Really? Especially through What play. constitutes play then at different developmental stages? Can you give me that? What is play? What is play for a preschooler? What's play for a school-age child? And what's play for a teen? So what's play for a, a preschool-age child is gross motor movement, big movement, outside play, large muscle play. Let them get their energy out. Though, and that causes the release of oxytocin in the body. That's that feel-good hormone. Hmm. It's the hormone that bonds us to our babies when we nurse them. It's the hormone that bonds us to our parents when we play with them. It's the hormone that bonds us to our children when we hug them, um, with our friends when we laugh with them. That oxytocin is like the anti-cortisol. Okay, what's cortisol? Cortisol is that stress hormone okay, that I got talked it. about. Right, right. Right, that's okay. fight or flight. Okay. So oxytocin is the anti-cortisol. It walks back that fight or flight response. Wow. It, 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 it is the resiliency hormone. Huh. Oxytocin is the resiliency hormone. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The bonding hormone, the love hormone. The more we can increase oxytocin in our children. So let's move on to like the, the school, the school age kid. Great. 
um, they still really can benefit from active play. So whether it is um, just taking my kids to the playground and having a play date at the playground or taking them by themselves to the playground, or whether it's going to a museum where they can actively play and interact with exhibits, um, that releases oxytocin. Unfortunately, sitting in front of your television and watching a video, while it's a very useful and valid parenting tool for (laughs) certain times... Um, Electronic babysitting. Does not give that same response. But wait, why would my children, for example, would say to me, you know, they're in front of their PlayStation and and they're happy and they're hooting and hollering and jumping around and enjoying that. But you're saying that's a different pleasure center than the cortisol pleasure center? It is different. Now, yeah. when if you move on to the teenage okay. years where you're playing with people and that's a shared activity. While that's not as great for the exercise right. uh, benefits and the you know the the pleasure of the of the exercise and the physical release that releases its own hormones, that playing with friends shared activity does create some of that bonding. Okay, so let me ask you this question. This is going to be contentious. I know. I know that with Fortnite and a lot of the other video games, our kids are playing remotely mm-hmm. with other children. So they say they're in a pack, they're, they're with their peers, but they're not person to person. Can they, can that approximate socialization and the addictive quality of that sort of play? Where does that come in and how much should we be worried about that? I have a a girlfriend who tells me that her child's friends are all remote. They're all digital and that he considers them his dear friends and they play together. And if she takes away his system, then she takes away his friends. How do you respond to that? I respond to that, that that is one of the really complex issues in parenting today. This electronic connection that kids have when they don't have the IRL, the in real life connection, right? It's something that I think we as a different generation cannot understand in the same way as I'm a digital immigrant and I will always be a digital immigrant. My kids are digital natives, although not as much as they could have been. We've chosen to limit electronics in in some manner. Mm-hmm. So they have a different relationship with technology that I'm not ever going to understand. Right. In the same way my father has trouble understanding my uh, relationship with my telephone as my computer. <laughs> right. Um, so I understand that. And part of my job as a pediatrician to teenagers is helping parents understand the benefit of that activity while helping the teenager understand the potential downside of that activity. And what is the potential downside? Is that they miss out on that in real life activity, that that actual physicality of being with someone and doing an activity with them is different than doing it virtually. So is the cortisol created through the pleasure of the interaction or does it require a physical interaction to achieve its highest level? Well, I think you mean the, the oxytocin. That's right. <laughs> but but um, the studies are still out on that. I mean, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of research that is still left to be done about that and understanding 
this huge generational shift that is taking place. I mean, I still, I have contact with people in different countries at and all hours of the day. And that's so different, very different from the way I was raised where after nine o'clock, we weren't allowed to use the telephone because that could wake someone up. Oh, I remember that. Right. Do you hear concern from mothers about a kind of digital obsession or um, even addiction? All the time. And what do they say? They say that all they their kids want to do is be in their room. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't really sleep very much anymore, yeah. or they're up at all hours. Okay, and, so know. then let's go into sleep because you know earlier you and I were speaking about self care, and you were talking about the importance of sleep. So I would imagine if it's important for an adult, it's even more important for children. And since this is often an area of concern, can you run me through sleep needs through toddlerhood? and then school age, and then teen. Where are the differences, and what are the benefits and the deficits of not managing your sleep cycle? Sure. Well, that's that's a whole other interview in and of itself. I could talk for hours about sleep, okay. because I really do think that sleep is probably one of the most critical needs, right? Literally after food and water comes sleep. Hmm. Uh, you know, You know that people become psychotic after short periods without sleep. So, uh, and I experienced that after the birth of my kids. Tremendous, tremendous compassion for people who have difficulties with sleep. Because the more we learn about sleep, the more we understand it impacts literally every organ system in our body. Uh, And sleep is probably underlying a large portion of the behavioral issues that kids are having today. Yeah, because we know when they're toddlers and they're raving lunatics, often it's because they miss their nap. Exactly. Um, so sleep needs vary widely by age. Okay. But in a in a gross simplification, okay. when kids are little, their natural body clock is early to bed, early to rise. So my kids... Because kids really wake up, their natural body clock wakes them up at a certain time, regardless of when they go to sleep the night before. The worst parental myth is if you put your if you put your kid in bed later, they'll sleep later. Yeah. If you put your kid to bed later, they'll wake up at the same time, and you'll have a very crabby kid. Oh, so true. So true. Uh, sometimes we'll spend the night at friends' houses, and we always go to bed late. Those are special nights in our house. And I'm prepared right. that what my kids are going to be like the next day. And I will often say to people, this is what eight hours of sleep looks like in a child who normally gets 11. Uh-huh. And is vastly different. And what age do you think that, that that need for that long stretch starts to diminish? So not as early as we think. Yeah. Um, even so the age, the school age kid, the eight, nine, 10 year old still needs about 10 hours of sleep a night. Mm. And as they go into teenagerhood, puberty shifts that natural body clock from early to bed, early to rise to a grown up, which is late to bed, late to rise if left to our own devices. Right. Right. So unfortunately, high school still starts at you know, for most places, 8 a.m. If you're fortunate enough, your high school has started to recognize that and schools are starting to push their start time towards 8.30 or maybe 9 o'clock huh. to let kids get extra sleep. They did a study in Texas. One school system pushed their start date of their start time of school from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. I mean, this is not ideally start time for a teenager would be 10 o'clock I for know. their natural body clock. But they, they pushed it from, from 8 to 9 o'clock. And they saw a 70% reduction in the amount of motor 
vehicle accidents wow. that their students were involved in over the next year. Wow. That is profound. I mean, the putting seatbelt, the seatbelt law decreased motor vehicle accidents by 25%. And you would have thought that, right. you know, like seatbelts, that's the law, right? So if we could pay attention to that, if that, like understanding the sleep needs of our kids, um, I, I also, I work with parents a lot who, who have kids on a very different sleep schedule. I mean, that's going to have impact. That, that's going to, so, so that's walking that fine line of knowing what's best physically for a child and what's possible within the family situation. And I try to help those families understand that, you know, maybe a nap in the afternoon will work or you know, like help them understand how to still get the best outcome for their kids while understanding that life gets in the way. And, you know, when when uh, Shabbat comes in the summer and it's kind of late, you know, sometimes I keep my kids up. When they were little, I didn't. I put them to bed really early. But now I walk that line of, well, we'll try and catch up on sleep and over the next couple of days because that experience is important. So if I do that with my own kids, how can I judge someone else for wanting to do that with their family, for wanting their family to work the way they the w- way that they want it to? And I think that's the most transformational idea that that I now share with my families is that every family gets to decide how it looks for them. And within the boundaries of a very few black and white issues, don't smoke around your kids, make them wear seatbelts, put helmets on them. <laughs> Outside of that, it's all a very gray area. Wow. And you get to decide what it looks like for you and you should have a pediatrician and you should have people in your life who help you support that. You know, I, I mean, I could talk to you for another four hours. <laughs> there are a million other questions. Perhaps we can make a date to do this again. I would love because that. Because I'd love to ask you about food. I'd love to ask you about, you know, it, nutrition. There's so many things I'd like to ask you, but really you've left me um, feeling like I got that full attention that I so desperately <laughs> tried to get 20 years ago from my children. I am so grateful to you. Thank you, Eileen. This has been a deep pleasure for me. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining the Pashmina podcast. When women empower one another, we ignite a force that can change the world. Unlock your power today. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Momentum Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a Momentum Podcast. For unlimited inspiration, wisdom, and empowerment, visit MomentumUnlimited.org.